Hello and welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomeranke, and I'm here today in the studio with Iceland Review writer Ragnar Thomas. We're going to be taking a look at his piece, Turf and Rescue, a look at Icelandic turf houses and their preservation. Turf and Rescue, honoring the traditional craft of Iceland's turf houses. Öster Melalost. Hannes Laurusson grew up in a cluster of turf houses on the farmstead Öster Melalost in southwest Iceland. His ancestors moved there around 1850. The houses they constructed were made with the remnants of the land's pre-existing houses, which slouched near the marshes when they arrived. The history of the farmstead stretches nearly as far back as the settlement. In 1965, when he was 10 years old, Hannes moved to Reykjavik. He studied visual art and philosophy in Iceland and abroad prior to redirecting his attention to his childhood home in the mid-80s. By that time, the turf houses of Östermelholt were abandoned and on the verge of ruin. Although he had observed those houses being mended as a boy, he lacked the know-how to rebuild them himself. And so Hannes and his family enlisted the aid of Johannes Arason, a turf master who grew up in the Westfjords Guvudalsveit area and who stayed with him for parts of the summer between 1987 and 1993. Over time, Hannes grew so enamored with his style of construction and its associated tradition that he began traveling around the country to interview turf masters about their trade. He would often sketch the buildings and their interiors, too. During the reconstruction of his family's turf houses, procedures were, in Hannes's own words, supervised by the, quote, expertise, knowledge, and passion of painter and scholar Hörður Aukusson, who had spent considerable time researching the history of vernacular architecture in Iceland. It slowly dawned on Hannes that no one was paying attention to the phenomenon of Icelandic turf houses in any kind of comprehensive manner, most notably from the perspectives of aesthetics and craftsmanship. There were museums, of course, but not enough was being done to keep the traditional craft alive, or to observe things within a wider context. Hörður felt the same way. And so, in the early 2000s, Hannes conceived the idea of converting Östermelholt into a research center and a museum. Besides allowing visitors to step inside a living Icelandic turf house, he also wanted to make and exhibit some of the traditional tools associated with the craft, host workshops on the construction of turf houses, and display photographs and other items related to the tradition. Thus, Íslenskibæðin, the Icelandic farmstead, opened its doors to visitors in 2014. Generational Shifts It's a sunny afternoon in early July when I park my electric vehicle on the gravel lot next to Islandski Biden. I extract the Bluetooth headphones from my ears, remove both smartphones from my jacket pocket, and turn on the dictaphone apps for good measure. I'm a fine listener and a curious asker of questions, but I outsource memory to the machines. My grandmother grew up in a turf house not dissimilar to those found on the property, and I have often observed, whenever the topic of turf houses surfaces in conversations, that no other generation in human history experienced such profound changes as hers. In the space of just over 75 years, 
she went from living in a turf house without running water to zooming across the Atlantic ensconced in a commercial aircraft with Wi-Fi in-flight entertainment and AI-powered applications on smartphones. The memory of my grandmother accompanies me into the museum's exhibition hall, where I encounter artist Berintis Ran Ragnarsdóttir, Hannes's partner and main collaborator since 2018. She ushers me inside their home, which is separated from the exhibition hall by a single door. Their house is a two-story building, paneled with corrugated iron on the outside and shielded from the northerly winds with a wedge-shaped hillock of turf and stone. The interior is an open space. The living room is adjoined to the kitchen, whose windows look out upon greenery and pecking hens. As Brindis pours coffee, Hannes, whose gray hair and black eyebrows rather resemble those of actor David Strathern, of good night and good luck fame, settles down to eat his lunch. He has just returned from Laksabaki, a turf house erected by filmmaker Oswaldur Knudsen in 1943, where he spent the morning repairing a chimney. He's sweating. Finnish architect Alvar Alto is said to have called Laksambaki, quote, the most beautiful house in Iceland when he visited in the late 1960s. He was attending the inauguration of the Nordic House in Reykjavik, which he designed. By 2017, however, Laksambaki would have been nearly unrecognizable to anyone who had visited the house in its prime. According to Hannes, the once magnificent turf house was littered with, quote, beer cans, broken glass, plastic bags, food scraps, and smelly waste. Laksabaki was acquired by Islandske Bayern in 2018 with plans for restoration, and the couple's advocacy campaign led to the house receiving protective status in 2020. You have these search and rescue teams all over the country who assist hikers or tourists who have gotten themselves into trouble, but in these muses. Hannes and I have often wondered if we should found a similar organization, but to save the turf houses. After all, it's a group effort. Settlers When the first settlers arrived in Iceland, an estimated 30% of the island was covered by trees. They were mostly birch trees, however, which are too soft, too moist, and too small to be used as construction material for anything other than doors or frames. There was very little wood from which to build, Hannes explains. There wasn't any spruce or pine, and birch, even in Russia or Finland, has never really been good for building. Rowan and ash were also rare in Iceland, and poplars didn't grow here until the 19th century, I believe but they're not great construction material either. Given this scarcity, Iceland's settlers imported their wood, which they initially used to construct longhouses, elongated, single-room buildings for communal dwelling. As imported wood grew scarcer, however, and as the inhabitants inevitably learned how poorly suited such buildings were to the unforgiving Icelandic winters, the coming generations were forced to turn to locally available resources. Limestone would have been useful, of course, for it could be quarried, heated, and mixed with aggregates, such as sand or gravel, to create mortar. But despite being common in most places around the world, 
limestone was rare in Iceland. There was some clay, Hannes observes, but we lacked the capability to dry clay in a kiln, and we could not have used raw clay like they did in the British Isles or Denmark on account of the weather. This left only turf and stone. Turf is an excellent insulator and is abundant in Iceland. The kind of turf best suited to construction was cut from the marshes for its denser and more intricate root system makes it stronger and better insulated as well as easier to stack. In this respect, the environment near Östermelaholt was especially auspicious. In our area, Flowin, which translates to marshy ground in this context, there is, of course, plenty of fine turf, Hannes tells me. We cut our turf in the nearby marshes, a stone's throw away from here, and without it we wouldn't have survived. We also used driftwood and wood from shipwrecks. The turf was then paired with stone, mostly igneous, which forms from the cooling and solidification of magma or lava, which was left uncut, as the process of hewing stone would have been slow and would have required good tools. The stones were then loaded between layers of turf and dirt, which kept them steady and served to further improve insulation. Turf houses were commonly built into the side of hills, almost like hobbit holes, as shelter from the wind. Clustered Turf Houses Sometime in the 14th century, the Icelanders began appending smaller houses to the main buildings on their farmsteads, a trend that eventually resulted in the uniquely Icelandic phenomenon of clustered turf houses. Indeed, turf houses are called torf bayir in Icelandic. The second word, bayir, can mean either town or farm, which speaks to the vague expansiveness of the clustered turf houses in Iceland. They're sometimes called gangna bayir, and rendered as hallway farmhouses. A torfbeir is a cluster of buildings where the boundaries between the buildings are unclear, and each unit is connected to the others in a holistic manner, Hannes once observed in an article on this style of building. It is actually not entirely clear whether a traditional turf farm is to be considered one house or many. The reason why the Icelanders gradually transitioned from longhouses to clusters of turf houses had a lot to do with heat. Given that these houses were mainly warmed via body heat, Hannes explains, it was difficult to keep large houses warm. It also had to do with access to building materials. To build these bigger longhouses, you would need more wood, which the settlers initially imported from Norway. As suitable wood grew scarce, the houses became smaller. Building a turf house, depending on the number of laborers, of course, did not take long compared to houses made from wood. A few weeks or a few months at the most. And clustered turf farms were the dominant form of architecture throughout the Middle Ages in Iceland. It was not until the second half of the 18th century that houses were first built from hewn stone held together with mortar, the first of which was Vedeyrstova on Vede Island, taken into use in 1752. At around the same time, the number of residential houses made of wood began to increase, partly because the Danish trade monopoly was abolished in 1787, and merchants, both Danish and Icelandic, began to settle in increasingly urbanized areas.
When asked if there are turf houses similar to the Icelandic variety in Norway or other parts of Scandinavia, Hannes answers in the negative. These houses are unique to Iceland where they evolved in a special manner. There was much more wood in Norway, for example, and no Norwegian would ever think, upon seeing these Icelandic turf houses, that they could be of Norwegian origin. There is some similarity between the Icelandic turf houses and the houses of the Sami people, who used turf as well, but they were circular, but there were never these clusters of houses neither. No one would confuse the Icelandic turf houses with traditional Scottish or Irish ones either. Disappearance In 1890, approximately 87% of Icelanders lived in turf houses. Back then, there were perhaps 1,000 people living in Reykjavik. Other towns were less populated. Hannes estimates that around 1900, there were approximately 80,000 turf houses, isolated houses which composed clustered farmsteads, in the country, one for every Icelander alive at the time. And only a small percentage of people lived in villages or towns, Hannes observes. Take Selfos, for example, which is a 10-minute drive from Östermelerholt. It didn't really exist prior to the Second World War. It was little more than a bridge in Trikvarskaule. The wooded house, known as Trikvarskaule, is still there and houses a restaurant. But now a town of 11,000 people has materialized around it. Given the recent, historically speaking, prevalence of turf houses in Iceland, it's remarkable to think that they've all but disappeared. I've had foreigners visit who ask, when did the Icelanders settle this area? Was it in the 1950s? Hannes says and laughs. This may seem like a silly question, he continues, but anyone driving through the nearby towns won't see any remnants of houses much older than that. Cruising through Selfos and Hatla, for example, all you see are houses that are 30 to 40 years old. Hannes explains that turf houses all but disappeared in Iceland in the two decades after the post-war period. Between 1910 and 1960, the percentage of Icelanders living in turf houses dwindled from 52% to 1%. Today, there are less than a dozen turf houses that are well-preserved. Few enough to enumerate on two hands, Hannes remarks. You have Östermelerholt, Aurbeir and Reykjavik, and then Glimpeir and Skafjörður. Nothing in between there, geographically speaking. There's Hrapsere in the Westfjords, where Jón Sigurðsson, leader of the Icelandic independence movement, was born. But that wasn't, doesn't count because it was reconstructed. Then there's Litlipeir and Skötufjörður, that one counts. Laufás, Granjadarstaður, Bustafell, Þverá and Sel in Uraivir, which is, in my opinion, only an empty shell. Finally, Keldur, and we've gone around the entire island. Sainautasel is a renovated turf house, and Tirvingstadir was likewise rebuilt at the time that I was writing my book on the subject. Durability There are several reasons why so few well-preserved turf houses are left in Iceland. The first reason has to do with durability. Turf houses require constant upkeep, and each generation must decide whether to repair or raise the building, which also makes them quite sustainable. The same holds true for traditional houses around the world, Hannes remarks. 
The old timber houses in Japan, for example, didn't last more than 20 to 30 years. And in Africa, clay houses were sometimes rebuilt every year following the rain season. Hardur Alkushon once observed that in no other northwestern European country were the conditions for research into vernacular architecture worse than in Iceland. The reason being, primarily, that the construction material stood the test of time worse than our neighbors. You can count on one hand the number of turf houses that are older than half a century, he wrote. Aside from the relative perishability of these houses, they also had very few champions. Icelandic literature found advocates and great writers like Haltor Laxnes, Gunnar Gunnarsson, and Thorbergur Thorlason, Hannes explains. If we had had their equivalents in visual art and architecture, our turf houses may have been better preserved. After all, Icelandic literature at the beginning of the 20th century was at risk of being relegated to the dustbin, and even Laxnes began writing in Danish. Brindis also believes that when the Icelanders began to migrate from rural areas into larger towns in the early 20th century, most of them did not possess the financial means or the scholarly encouragement to stand up for their architectural heritage, although they most certainly had warm feelings and innate pride towards their former houses. The rural folk had an inferiority complex towards the elite bourgeoisie, a tiny population of city dwellers in the educated class that represented the broader modern world, Berendi's notes, and with the advent of martial aid, we received money to tear down and rebuild. Building turf houses was banned in Reykjavik in the post-war era, Hannes notes, and you couldn't get a loan from the bank to rebuild them. But you could get a loan to tear them down and build something else. I even know of a few examples in our own neck of the woods. Some farmers were encouraged to tear down their turf houses, which they did, and many have since regretted it. Balstorn. Although Eastlandske Biden is partly geared towards tourists, they charge admission into the museum, Berendis and Hannes have wanted to devote more effort to the cultural and research side of their venture. The tourist aspect of our operations is more of an extra. We focus on mediating a precarious knowledge and methodology and welcome visitors, but we don't put special effort into marketing this site for mass tourism. We can't do both, Brindis remarks. To Brindis and Hannes, who are both visual artists, turf houses seem inextricably linked to their discipline. They're interesting from so many different perspectives, Brindis observes, both in terms of how the houses have evolved over time, but also how they require residents to live with them. Take the Palstova, for example, which is this constantly evolving theater set. The daily routine of the inhabitants is woven into the house. The Palstova, which Hannes ranks among Iceland's greatest contributions to world culture, mainly on account of its design, proportionality, and use of light, is something of a doozy. Unique to Icelandic turf houses, the Balistova is a space that functions simultaneously as a bedroom, living room, and a kind of workshop. Imagine if your house was designed in such a way that two sides of your living room were lined with beds to accommodate all the members of your large intergenerational household who would, depending on the time of day, use the room to sit, eat, talk, sleep, read, knit, or carve. For Brindis, 
The organic rhythm and functionality of the turf houses occupy the opposite end of the spectrum from modern homes, which have come to represent a kind of mechanistic separation of work and social life. There's always this greater and greater separation between these spheres, but in these laments, it engenders a sense of alienation, this idea of working and working so that you can earn a vacation and then escape the everyday. To me, that's a form of derangement. Postscript. Everything breaks down. Prior to taking my leave of Islandsky Biden, Hannes and Brindis give me a tour of the turf houses. We visit the ten or so houses on the property, the shed, the Balistova, where Hannes's grandmother gave birth to her ten children, and where she died, the barn, the kitchen. As we wind our way back to the parking lot, Hannes stops to show me some tools used in the cutting of turf and the construction of turf houses. He explains how his grandfather used to mend everything that broke, and how they used to joke that everything he mended was better than the original. Hannes picks up a shovel, which he had mended by soldering a strip of iron to the blade. Just like his grandfather's repairs, the shovel was better than new. Nowadays, whenever something breaks, we tend to throw it away, I muse. I sometimes wish I possessed the patience and skill to repair my belongings. Yes, that's an absolute must, Hannes exclaims. Repair everything that breaks. That's my philosophy. I don't like throwing anything away. Well, thanks for sharing the piece, Ragnar. You're very welcome. Uh, to just start off with, what kind of attracted you to writing about turf houses? I mean, obviously, in one sense, it's maybe something that a lot of people already know a little bit about. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, a, a couple things. One, um, we hadn't really done any recent coverage on turf houses for our magazine, uh, at least not since I started writing for Iceland Review. Um, and also, uh, I, so my, my mother's side of the family is from Skagafjörður in, in North Iceland. And we used to visit uh, our cottage there every summer when I was younger. Um, and there's one of the more famous sort of turf house museum in Iceland is located there, Glimpair. And so I remember hearing about my grandmother and how she grew up in a turf house not dissimilar to Glimpair. And I've always been curious um, about turf houses in general. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating how there is still a generation, uh, a shrinking one, but there is still a generation that has grown up in turf houses in Iceland. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And I, like I mentioned in the piece, I, I, I'm relatively comfortable in saying that I think my grandmother's, my grandfather's generation is that possibly generation in human history that has experienced the greatest leap forward as far as technology and improvement of sort of living conditions is concerned. I mean, imagine going from a tiny turf house in North Iceland without running water um, to, to smartphones. To <laughs> smartphones, yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty extraordinary. I mean, I think... I, yeah, I, I mean, it, 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 it's just seeing the entire industrial revolution in your lifetime. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, exactly, which also speaks to Weissen's isolation. But I remember my grandfather used to say that 
I mean, he received, I think he was the first person in Skagafjörður who received a football because some soldier had brought one, you know, during war. And I mean, that was like, he was the envy of the entire sort of <laughs> municipality because he had this football <laughs> that they can play around with. So the turf house is just one of these icons of Iceland. It's like a very strong image that a lot of people have in their head when they think about Iceland. Um, you know, was there anything that kind of surprised you in researching this or in talking with Hannes about some of these turf houses? I mean, maybe how they're built, what life must have been like inside them. You know, maybe anything that doesn't quite conform to... You know, I mean, maybe a certain romanticized image of what life inside these turf houses might have been like. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it had to do with just like, you know, while reading about and talking to Hannes about these buildings, I made some very sort of practical discoveries about just my own house, for example, and and just the recognition, like, it had never occurred to me and because our living room where I live in Hapnafjörður has like, um, you know, almost this sort of Danish height to it. So the ceiling is like, I don't know, three meters. And that space always felt a little cold to me. Mm. And it never clicked for me that, oh yeah, the reason why it's cold is because it's a large space. Um, uh, you know, uh -huh. it's, it's, it's so high. And then, you know, Hannes talking about like, well, the reason why the, the turf houses were, you know, these very snug, small places with these low ceilings was just because it, they're easier to heat. And as someone who grows up in modern housing, you don't necessarily think about these things. Like, you know, I don't know. It, it's just funny how certain things like that, very basic things that you would think everyone would realize click for you. And, and, uh, so yeah, th that was one aspect of it. Um, like the heating aspect of these homes and also just sort of the general like timeline and evolution of these houses in Iceland like um, I go over in the pieces you know initially the settlers brought wood from Norway Scandinavia which were much more suited to building these long houses mm. and then when that wood ran out you have very little to work with as far as wood and building materials are concerned, and which is why the houses take this sort of shape and form that they do because it's entirely dependent, dependent on the material available. And also just like with limestone, limestone being so rare in Iceland that you, know, you couldn't build any kind of use, heat the limestone to create mortar yeah. And so yeah, it was interesting to me to learn about uh, clay, I guess, and how you know there's, I guess, big differences between different types of clay and how some kinds of clay are more or less usable in construction. Um, I mean, also just with my background and interests, um, you know, e even in the Icelandic sagas, uh, whenever like a hero or a protagonist goes to visit Norway, and a king wants to give an Icelander like a fine gift or something, it's usually a ship filled with timber right <laughs> like that, that, that that's kind of like the most precious thing that you can actually give uh, like like an icelandic traveler is just some construction material exactly yeah it makes sense <laughs> uh you know um so obviously when we talk about this era of iceland uh Loxness was one of the great chroniclers of this 
massive social change. Um, you know, and, you know, maybe when we think of Loxness, maybe people who haven't read him, uh, they might think of a certain like romanticized idea of Iceland. But, you know, I mean, Loxness was also very kind of socially minded and very kind of critical and, you know, uh, in his great work, Independent People, it's also not a totally nice picture that's being painted of what life inside some of these turf houses was like. And it's actually quite a hard life. It's quite, quite grim at times, actually. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I sort of enjoyed doing while writing this piece is sort of comparing some of the spaces inside the turf houses to one's own home. And for example, the concept of the Balustova, which Hannes, you know, thinks of as one of Iceland's greatest contribution to modern or to world culture, I, I should say. And, and yeah, just sort of superimposing that concept upon the modern home of sitting in my living room, imagining we well, yeah, think of, you know, just think of if these two walls here were lined with beds and, uh, you know, I would have my mother here and my grandmother there and, <laughs> And this is where we would spend the majority of our day, you and know, like three dogs, <laughs> three dogs, and, <laughs> and maybe we had, you know, some kind of like livestock below us to make sure that the heat is sort of wafting up below into the floors. Oh. And yeah, I mean, it, it's really hard to imagine living inside of a space like that um, for someone who grew up in, you know, in, in the comfort of living in a concrete home. So yeah, I mean. It's really quite eye-opening spending some time in these spaces and and trying to put yourself into the shoes of people who, who spent a lifetime there. And like Honest's grandmother, who, I mean, she gave birth to, I believe it was 10 children in mm. the Balastova, and then she died there. So, I mean, it was like an everything room. I mean, yeah. 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 It's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, and to kind of stay on Loch Ness for a second, um, you know, I remember uh, one of the most striking images for me in reading Independent People is, you know, as Björdur, uh, the protagonist, uh, the kind of like the main farmer of the story, you know, uh, towards the end of the narrative, he kind of becomes a little bit more materially successful. He's able to eventually take out a loan to begin construction on a new modern concrete house. And the way that the story kind of ends uh, is not a particularly optimistic one. He builds this uh, kind of modern concrete house, but it kind of is just standing empty and unfurnished out in the wilderness. Like there's not any furniture or, or doors or windows in it really. It's just kind of this empty concrete shell. And, you know, I think that's like a very interesting image. And I think that's some, somehow still very alive in modern Iceland, you know, I mean, not to kind of get too much into the social and economic aspect of everything, but, you know, uh, life continues to be hard. Mortgages are difficult to pay. Uh, to me, it just seems very Icelandic to kind of um, focus the story of somebody's life, like around their home, like around their house. Like, like, what does it take to build this place? Like, like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I remember, so I reread Independent People not too long ago, and I remember reading that uh, Luxness had been influenced by the Nor Norwegian Nobel laureate, Knut Hamsun, yeah. who had wrote uh, Salt Gro Growth of the Soil. Growth of the Soil. 
And uh, I, I actually read Growth of the Soil uh, at around the same time. And yeah, yeah, there was something like the most powerful image from Growth of the Soil for me was when, um, I forget the protagonist's name, he sort of goes out into the wilderness and builds his home. And I mean, it's labor intensive, it's difficult, it takes some time, but he builds his home with his own two hands. And then there's just this image of him standing sort of in the doorway, admiring this thing that he had built, that he had constructed with his hands. And and I remember buying my first apartment um, and sort of feeling sort of that same way, <laughs> just like, yeah, this is my home. But at the same time, I, I had obviously not built it with my own two hands. So yeah, there, there's something to be said about that. I mean, a, a lot of Icelanders, not a lot, but a significant portion of society still, you know, I have friends who, who buy plots of land, you know, for example, in Havnafjörður uh, and other places, and, and they being sort of uh, carpenters or plumbers, you know, they, they, they build these houses by themselves with the help of other people. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, there's something to that, something... Um, I don't know, just, uh, yeah, the, the pride of, like, ownership and, and building. Well, I mean, like, like you see that in a very concrete way, how, I mean, still in Iceland, uh, most people do try to buy their homes. I mean, there's a relatively uh, smaller rental market in Iceland than there is, uh, like, a market for um, home buyers, for instance. And, you know, I mean, to me, that's a very kind of clear relic of this recent like farming culture. Like there is still this idea that like, you know, a man needs his home and like, you have to have your, your homestead, your farmstead. And, you know, like we are just still one, two, three generations removed from this different world. And yeah, like there are these interesting things that linger in the culture. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think that, in doing your research for this piece, you also kind of came across an interesting quote by Loxness that was kind of apropos. Yeah, would you like me to read it? Yeah, sure. All right, Uh, so this is from um, an article that Loxness wrote in 1930. Quote, unpretentious simplicity is the golden mean of every work of art, that every smallest part serves its purpose modestly. It is strange how people, in quote, the ugliest city in the world strive to build their houses so solidly as if they should last forever. But while Icelandic architecture existed, it was never customary to build houses that lasted for longer than a generation at a time. But in those days, there were beautiful houses in Iceland. That's the quote. Yeah. You know what? What does that kind of mean to you, or like, like what in the Icelandic national spirit do you think it kind of reflects? I mean, like, like to me, certainly this idea of simplicity and kind of like a certain kind of practical humility, humbleness is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just interesting that he says, you know, it was never customary to build houses that lasted for longer than a generation, and and in those days, those houses were beautiful. Um, which is, yeah, it is this sort of modest, humble way of approaching things. Of It reminds me very much of, like, my grandmother, who had this kind of attitude of, 
yeah, I'm here now, best to enjoy it, not make too much of a fuss about it. Um, and and one day I'll be gone and that's okay too. It, you know, it, it isn't like, I don't know, it, it strikes me as very different from like some of the attitude of, you know, these Silicon Valley tech giants who are mm. trying to prolong their lives endlessly because... Move fast <laughs> and break things, I think they say. Yeah, it's something... Which would seem to be the opposite of uh, trying to repair everything you can. <laughs> right, yeah, that's exactly it. And uh, I also just like, you know, it's it's something as someone who loves literature and writing, um, it, it's just like the, the most timely truth about good writing is like unpretentious simplicity. Mm. You know, Nietzsche had the idea of writing like a child. And I think my three sort of probably favorite books that I have stacked together um, somewhere in my house are uh, Catcher in the Rye, Huckleberry Finn, and um, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Because, mm. I mean, you have these sort of childlike voices who are speaking together very... Or speaking very simply and unpretentiously, and and yeah, there's just something enduring and beautiful about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, this will be a little bit of a digression, uh, but just because this is something that I'm interested in, I think that there's some really interesting ways in which, like, the historical farmstead still kind of structures the modern language. Um, you know, I mean, for instance, the word for you know just the door to a home, like an entrance, is dirtnar, um, which is grammatically plural. So, I mean, like, you kind of think of it as two things. And that's because on these old farmsteads, I mean, there literally were two doors. And that's for insulation. There would be, like, an inner door and an outer door. And most modern homes, you know, I mean, there's just one door. And yet, still to this day, in the language, like we say, dirtnar. And, you know, that's just kind of taken for granted. That's just what the entrance to a home is. Uh, but that comes from like, you know, uh, this history that is still quite recent in a lot of ways, actually. Um, I also think it's kind of interesting, um, you know, like you see in a lot of place names, uh, you know, Stadir, Stadir, you know, I mean, probably a lot of travelers have at least seen the name Eil Stadir. Um, and that's also grammatically in the plural. So, you know, it's Eil's steads and i mean very often when we were kind of thinking about these turf houses we might just think of one house but i mean really it was like a complex there was a lot of different little houses and you know there would have been a little storage shed and maybe uh like a specific kitchen area sometimes on the larger farmhouses and stuff like that i mean you certainly had like the humbler ones where everything just kind of takes place all in one room but, you know, I mean, some of like the larger families, like, you know, there could have been 20, 30 people like living on a on a complex. And so, yeah, you know, like like there's just an interesting way in which like modern place names, words still in different ways kind of like go back and like make reference to. Yeah, the historical farm. Yeah, definitely. And that's one of the things that actually didn't make it into the piece. Um, me and Hannes had. Uh, quite a lengthy discussion about like how uh, the farmstead, the old turf houses, how all of that terminology uh, really informs our modern language. And I think one example that he took that I, if I remember correctly, was like Himreiden, mm. which is uh, kind of like a driveway, yeah. Um, yeah. but refers to the path that the residents would take on horseback towards 
the farm said yeah. and he mentioned yeah. uh, a lot of similar um, words and phrases that we sort of don't associate with the turf houses but that are really rooted in this tradition so yeah that's that's definitely fascinating so one last question uh this is all really interesting and if anybody wanted to check out Islandski Bayern or uh, the Icelandic uh, is, it, is it officially called the Icelandic Turf House Museum? Um, well, it's called Islandske Bayern, yeah. which is, uh, I, I believe, the Icelandic farmstead. Yeah. Um, I would have to look up the... And so that's an Öster Medalholt. And how could a traveler find it, maybe? Yeah, so so the town, um, the name of the farmstead is Öster Medalholt. So say that you're driving towards the south of Iceland along the ring road, um, basically drive through Selfoss. And once you're through the town, you come to a big roundabout, you just take a right. Um, I believe there is a sign along the way, and it's just a long open road um, through Mirtals Rappur. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's about, I think, a 10 minute drive from Selfos, five, 10 minutes. Uh, Google Maps probably come in, <laughs> come in handy. So in total, that's about, you know, maybe two hours or so from the capital region. Uh, less uh, if you're leaving from Reykjavik, um, you could be there in just about an hour, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks so much for talking and sharing the article today, Ragnar. Thank you as well. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, Iceland's longest running English language magazine, focusing on nature, politics, and community. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts.